0: Hello and welcome to this week's Leap of Faith. When the philosopher Voltaire asked the question, if God did not exist, would it be necessary to invent him? He might have been intrigued that we would still be asking that question 291 years later on a Friday evening. His question, of course, contains the assumption that indeed God does exist, and there have been many attempts to engage in that particular question by students of philosophy and great learned minds alike. So, let's make our own attempt on this philosophical mountain this evening. Joining me on that journey are Ian Robertson. Ian is Emeritus Professor of Psychology at Trinity College Dublin and was the Founding Director of Trinity College Institute of Neuroscience. He's a member of the Royal Irish Academy and his latest book is How Confidence Works. Also with us is Professor of Sociology at Maynooth University, Mary P. Corcoran. Her research and teaching interests lie primarily in urban sociology public cultures and the sociology of migration and her ambition is to bring sociology to a wider audience she's also co-editor with pauline cullen of the anthology producing knowledge reproducing gender and dr kenneth pierce is philosopher of religion at trinity college dublin kenneth is also co-author of a new book is there a god a debate by graeme oppie and kenneth pierce you're all very welcome Kenneth, I have to turn to you first, if I can, because with the title of a book like that, we need an answer. Is there a God? (laughs) Certainly. So uh,
1: there's a reason why we put this book in debate format. Right. But uh, but my job in the book is to defend the affirmative. So I'm I'm a believer in God and I'm defending that position uh, in this book as we're trying to kind of uh, lay it out for uh, a broader audience, the philosophical debate and reasons around this. In terms of um, uh, today's topic, uh, the naturalness of belief in God uh, to humans is something that is established by a lot of the empirical research in cognitive science and and elsewhere. In philosophy, we have a a question about what does that uh, evidence show us about whether the belief is rational? The fact that the belief is natural for humans. So this is a question that's, that I ask in the book, is given that there are these kind of naturalistic explanations for religious belief, could it still be uh, rational to actually uh, endorse those beliefs, to think that they're really true and not just some kind of uh, accidental evolutionary byproduct?
0: So it's, it's actually quite a global phenomenon. Every civilization at some point or other has a, had a God. Ian Robertson, can I turn to you then and say, is it the global community or is it that, that wonderful organ in our, in our body, the brain that has created this need for God?
2: Well, I'm, there is certainly a need for the belief in agency. And human brain has an incredible ability and tendency to project, even into inanimate objects, um, human-like thoughts, feelings, impulses, and motivations. I don't think the evidence is strong that there's a universal neural um, circuit, if you like, for believing in God, but there certainly is um, in all societies, most societies have attributed whether to trees or to holy places or to other inanimate objects. Have attributed agency, and I think that is for sure a, a very fundamental one and you know it was relatively late in human evolution that the the belief in, in if you like local agency crystallized into the you know the, the religions of the book where you had a more central type type of agency of, of, of the monotheistic religions. So um, I, I don't, I think there are, there are um, primitive tribes that don't believe, many who don't have a theology where they believe in a single God. In fact, it's probably pretty common in hunter-gatherer societies. Um, uh, but nevertheless, I, I, do, I do accept that this tendency to, to impart agency and to, to look for causal links is, is actually a very fundamental one in the human mind.
0: Is it too simplistic then to take it, you know, because you mentioned different civilizations, that we as human beings have a, have a need for what I think it's called psychological safety. We need to feel psychologically safe and God or a God makes us feel that way.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, we've, for most of our history, we attributed our fate in the world to God or more likely gods, And it was only really in the when we entered the era of, uh, of physics in the Enlightenment, where we started to have you know, impartial um, uh, laws of Newtonian physics, for instance, that suddenly we started to feel there were impersonal uh, rules governing the universe rather than the, the whim of, of deities. And um, for sure that uh, then we're, we're we are in a bit of an existential um, wilderness to some extent, to the extent that we don't feel nurtured and looked after by some all-controlling deity.
0: Professor Corkin, can I then turn to you? Uh, because the same Voltaire we, we quoted at the beginning of the programme also went on to say, he said, there is no God, but don't tell that to my servant, lest he murder me at night. Um, it was religion required for the control of society.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. And actually, well, but there's two things I'd probably say is it depends on which sociologist, which of the founding fathers you want to go with. Obviously, Karl Marx had a very strong view that society was structured around exploitative relations between a capitalist class and the proletarian. So in other words, the whole social system was structured around oppression, extraction, exploitation. And Marx believed that that all occurred in the economy. But to kind of copper fasten it or to scaffold it, you had superstructural institutions that reinforced that at every level. So the law, education and indeed religion. So for Marx, religion was purely a creation of the ruling class as part of their um, proselytizing the ruling ideas. Uh, to tell people that you really need to doff your cap to your superiors, work hard. You're going to get your reward in the next life. You don't have to worry about how you're being mistreated and exploited now. So you might even say that Marx is a little bit cynical about religion, whereas the other founding father, uh, it really picks up on what uh, Ian was saying, Emile Durkheim, who wrote a very famous book, Elementary Forms of Religious Life in 1912, uh, so well over 100 years ago. And he really took a very functionalist approach to religion. He definitely believed that human beings, you know, created a distinction between their everyday lives, which you might call the profane and sacred kind of space. And that sacredness was really embedded or embodied by particular kind of symbols Uh, which were rendered sacred within their collectivities. And he he really based his uh, analysis on the uh, ethnographic studies of Aborigines and their use of totems to express something special and sacred about their communities. But then Durkheim sort of scratched his head and said, well, actually, what people are doing here is they're conceiving the sacred object as a superior entity In fact, what it's symbolizing is the superiority of society over the individual. So Durkheim, and I think it's quite a compelling analysis, says that God and society are the same thing. So Durkheim was really concerned that individuals functioned best when they recognized their interdependence and their solidarity. And by kind of worshipping something sacred, through you know some kind of symbolic form and engaging in lots of rituals and ceremonials, we express our kind of belief in society, you know, which he, for him was really the same as God. And he, he actually, Durkham has a brilliant term where he says that during ceremonial times, people love to engage in a kind of collective effervescence. And I just think that's brilliant because it's exactly what we're all really not having during COVID-19. <laughs> And it's this idea of the collectivity and being together with others and having this incredible sense of being taken out of the everyday and the profane and the quotidian and actually just embracing the collective, the sense of belonging.
0: And and is this, again, a part of the the human condition Ian Robertson, if I come back to you on this one is, you know, we, we use God to cope with the possibility of mortality and and maybe even also to explain loss.
2: Yes, that, absolutely. These are inexplicable things that are incredibly painful, and we we try to create meaning out of them, and the, you know gods are very very useful for that. I think I think the description, Durkheim's description, there was really a brilliant one, because uh, what what the not only do these rituals serve the functions that we just heard, but they also have profound effects on the brain. The, 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 distinct effects on the brain of social bonding rituals like singing and chanting and rhythmic co-movements actually produce states st- chemical states of the brain that are quite out of the ordinary and no doubt contribute to the sense of being in that sacred space. So I think I think we're, we're in very the sociologists and the cognitive neuroscience in very similar ground here.
0: So it's doing no harm in other words is what you're saying.
2: Well the, where religions obviously can do harm is, is in creating the in group out group, but human beings will have a, can do this on a whim based on many different factors it 's just that because um, religions do embed themselves in, in people 's identities so so deeply and, and to the core of their identities the the in group out group differences and and the, the extent to which people will protect their egos are, is much, much more strong and therefore the potential conflicts are greater. But that can happen p- because of many different divisions among humans. Uh,
0: and Dr. Pierce, if you could expand on this a little bit further for me because what it sounds like now is that we have a, a population who might have had a nice, simplistic, almost infantile approach to, to God and their faith and now we're a little more educated, maybe getting uh, a little bit more um, willing to challenge the situation. What 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 does that do to the argument?
1: Certainly we do have a kind of need to critically reflect on the beliefs that we find ourselves naturally having. Um, but there's a question about when we begin that reflection, uh, how should we approach it? So Descartes, for instance, notoriously thought that kind of you reach adulthood, you get to an age where you can begin critically reflecting, and you should throw out all those inherited beliefs and start from scratch. And the problem is that no one has ever succeeded at that. That is, we can't rebuild from indubitable foundations enough to do science or to believe that other persons exist or to navigate the world. And so there's a sort of um, necessity, uh, as the Scottish philosopher Thomas Reed famously argued, there's a sort of necessity of trusting the beliefs that we naturally find ourselves with, and even the beliefs that we inherited from our cultural environment. That trust is not absolute. It doesn't make them immune from criticism. It means that these sorts of beliefs uh, serve as our starting point And we need a reason to change them rather than needing a reason to keep them. And so that is the kind of perspective that I would advocate to these religious beliefs as well, that just as we need to start from an attitude of trusting our senses and our memory and so forth, and then we discover that they're not perfectly trustworthy, that there are cases in which uh, we shouldn't believe their uh, deliverances and we should revise our beliefs and so on, that these kind of naturally occurring religious beliefs uh, are beliefs that we need to have the same attitude toward because they are part of our natural endowment as, as human beings seeking truth. Um, those religious beliefs, of course, can be very different for, very, for different people in different cultural environments. And that's why we sort of have this need then to proceed from there, to do some critical reflection, to do some philosophy, and see what kind of changes... Uh, our beliefs might require in order to make them rationally coherent and aligned with the evidence available to us and so forth.
0: And Kenny I know you working with your students have have looked at at this particular idea and I'd like to explore it a bit further because if we stay local for a moment about how we here in Ireland uh, and where we place God in in our lives. Uh, You were surprised you said by some of the attitudes of the Irish students in your class.
1: Yes. So I did find that uh, as compared to American students who I taught before, um, Irish students have a much easier time understanding a concept in philosophy of religion known as religious fictionalism. What religious fictionalism is, is the idea that you might go on practicing religion after you have lost the beliefs. So you might uh, continue attending mass. Uh, And engage in kind of the full set of religious practices, maybe even recite the Nicene Creed, despite not believing any of these things. And uh, my past experience with American students was that they had a difficult time getting their head around this stuff. That is, they think that kind of if you're an atheist, then you think that religion is bad and wrong and we need to get rid of it or something like that and that uh, being in a church, if you don't believe in God, is some kind of hypocrisy or dishonesty. Um, I don't say that my Irish students necessarily were all natural fictionalists, Mm -hmm. but it was obvious to them that that was a well-motivated attitude that a person might have. And um, this, I think, makes a certain amount of sense, given the importance of religious identity in Ireland— at a time when there's a lot of skepticism about the kind of official teachers in the major churches. And so there is this idea that there's a lot from religion that people might want to hold on to, even if they find themselves unable to hold on to all the beliefs.
0: Mary Corcoran, is that the case then from a point of view of Irish society? You know, we want to hold on to... Well,
3: actually, yeah. And I'm not even sure if it's just confined to Irish society because I always quote uh, myself, I always quote Germaine Greer because I always think this is, describes exactly how I am. Like she says, I love the ritual of the church. I love the costumes, the incense, the sensory kind of uh, the the sensory overload that it gives you. I just don't believe in God. And that is, I think, how many people feel that, you know, there's a lot of wonderful things about ritual behaviours, which allow us uh, to connect with each other, to feel a sense of belonging, feel a sense of a greater uh, collectivity above the individual. And I think that we look for that. And that's why I think the church or religious practice to some degree survives because people like to have ritual events in their life. And we've already mentioned funerals and funerals. I mean, the really interesting thing about funerals and there's some sociologists who've looked at this um, how the Irish funeral had to reinvent itself and people came up with new rituals to replace the old one of, you know, standing in a line in a church and shaking hands with somebody to give your condolences. Mm. Instead, you stood on the street in the elements and respectfully watched the cortege go by. So, I mean, it was very interesting how people adopted to conditions. But I think that shows that for all of us in our life, like we do need moments, activities, rituals, ceremonials that just connect us in with other people. And that's really important. I think the, the sociologist Tom Inglis has written about this and talked about in Ireland. You know, we uh, ha- have belonging without having believing that we've kind of separated those two things. And, uh, you know, that so like and, and it goes back to your point that you're making earlier, Michael, you know, secularization has shifted things. And of course, that's what absolutely worried Durkheim. What happens when the individual believes themselves to be more significant or important than the collective? And he really worried about that 100 years ago. So you can imagine how freaked out he'd be if he landed uh, in today's 21st century world where individualism is rife. And, uh, you know, other sociologists like Zygmunt Bowman have talked about this the kind of growing amorality in modern society the political disablement the sense of fragmentation of impermanence of uncertainty and that's what a lot of people live with now an incredible sense of uncertainty and either you i suppose connect in with religions that are there to be connected with are you try to? I think it was Kenneth who said earlier. You know, navigate the world by developing your own morality, or try to find a new morality, or even a, a different spiritual way of being in the world.
0: Ian, I'm curious about this um, perspective because I'm, I'm wondering: is there a danger if a, I'm not sure if it's the correct use of the phrase, but a cognitive dissonance or, or, a, or an internal conflict for somebody who's behaving in one way but not quite believing it in the other?
2: Well, we do that every time we go to the cinema or go to a play (laughs) to suspend disbelief and enter into an experience. And that's what we do with religious ritual and everything. And I do agree with both Mary and Kenny that it's it's a bit of a gap in our lives, and and a a secular world has deprived us of some very enriching experiences. But I don't believe that there's anything natural about the belief, theological beliefs. There is something natural in attributing agency to inanimate objects. Um, but uh, I, I, don't, I, I think that religious, theological beliefs in God have to be implanted by education um, or other forms of dissemination. They don't arise out of the biology of the brain, in my opinion.
0: Mary, you were talking also there about the idea of, you know, people necessarily uh, liking all of the ideas, but not necessarily wanting to attribute them to God. But, you know, there's an old phrase Mm. that's been around for a long time that if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. In other words, if if all of these things are happening, it's God. Uh,
3: I I think God can be found in different things in different places now. I mean, you know, many people argue that in a hyper-consumer society, which is the one we live in, that in in some senses, you know, the act of consumption, the social practice of consumption has almost replaced, if you like, what would have been religion in a previous era. I mean, Bauman actually, you know, in his book on liquid modernity, he sort of shakes his head and said, like, actually, when everything boils down to it, you know, I shop, therefore I am. That in a way for people to actually feel themselves connected with something kind of social in a really alienated kind of world i mean he has quite a depressive view of the world that that it is through that expression of consumerism and if you even think about this and um uh, uh tony cunningham an old colleague of mine wrote a fabulous essay you know which looked at places like dundrum shopping center and said you know that's actually the the modern mecca the cathedral the temple the the center of social and consumer society and that best represents, if you like, the change in the fabric of everyday life. Now, I actually think to some degree, if we're looking for a superior being in the world, we're now living in that world, the world of digital technology, of virtual reality, of algorithms that are driving and modifying our behaviour, shaping our behaviour, modifying our behaviour. Like, to me now, we could say that, actually, people like Mark Zuckerberg Uh, and his colleagues, uh, you know, who are running the big tech companies and who are using algorithms to really uh, almost, you know, transform human experience by uh, again, and it's about marketing and advertising and so on. But it is about shaping and reshaping and modifying human behavior. And if you ask me, like they are, if you like, the, the modern day gods, because they have a massive amount of power and people are very much kind of complicit in that process. And people are very attached to the symbols of that society, which are their smartphones.
0: Uh, You're covering a topic, which I suppose if a film (laughs) fan was thinking about it for a minute, there would only have to think about the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain and and where that power comes from. Kenny, if I can turn to you for a second on this. On on the basis of what Mary has just explained there for us, if that's the case, what are people missing out on if they now leave that original philosophy of religion for something new? What, what would they miss out on?
1: I mean, in philosophy, we're very concerned with exposing beliefs to critical scrutiny and which beliefs can stand up to that scrutiny um, in order to try to get to beliefs that are more likely to be true. And I guess one of the, the questions that would be asked about this kind of um, consumerism as an alternative to religion is whether it can really stand critical scrutiny both in terms of a conception of the good and in terms of a, a conception of, of what the world is like so the kind of the classical theistic tradition of of Judaism Christianity and Islam is is deeply concerned with this reflection on the nature of the good and the nature of the good life for a human being and uh, as it were finding that in god in some kind of union with the divine and so the the question isn't whether there are alternative conceptions to that one obviously there are but the question of whether this sort of uh, modern consumerist alternative will actually survive critical scrutiny whether uh whether at the end of the day the practitioners themselves are satisfied with the the meaningfulness that that gives to their lives.
0: Ian, uh, the last two years have been uh, an opportunity for people to experience challenges to their resilience. I think that's the word that everybody's uh, focusing on at the moment. Um, wh- how have people responded to that in a more secular world? Or Are you able to make an observation on that?
2: My observation, my kind of anecdotal observation, is that people have actually escaped to some extent from some of the clutches of the artefacts of the consumer World. They haven't been able to travel. A lot of lot of people I've met have been kind of reevaluating their priorities and rediscovering simpler things in their life to give them pleasure. And what gives? What makes us happy? Are relationships with other people, um, enjoying small small pleasures? Consumerism, consumerism probably is not a good route to happiness, and it's not certainly not the alternative to, uh, if you like, religious
3: belief. Uh, Just going back to what Ian said there, I mean, I absolutely appreciate his point and I would have experienced that myself that during lockdown, you know, there was a kind of a self-imposed, a self-limitation put on us. Uh, So we had to actually go back and think about what we do every day and how we do it. But I do recall that when I was doing my online classes with students, uh, some of them used to say to me, The only thing that's keeping me going is the DPD van coming up the drive right Mm. now with something, you know, something. That was the only way they could mark the weekend with with some consumer parcels coming into the house. But going back to Zygmunt Bauman, he very much uh, argued that, you know, in in the modern era of this era of uncertainty, we need to develop an ethic of self-limitation and think about... A morality that is based around care for the well-being of others and it's kind of interesting that Pope Francis actually has read uh, Bauman's work and really likes it because in some ways it is that very basic Christian message that to look beyond the individual and towards the social as much as you can.
0: And that's our Leap of Faith for this week. My thanks to my guests Professor Ian Robertson, Dr Kenny Pearce and Professor Mary P Corcoran. Our broadcast coordinator is Charlotte Holland, our producer Sheila Allen from them and from me Michael Cummins. Till next week. Good night.